Good evening, everybody. My name is Jamie Metzel. I'm Executive Vice President of the Asia Society. On behalf of all of us here, I would like to welcome you uh, to the first second of the first event of the first annual uh, Asia Society uh, Arts and Ideas Festival. So, as you know, Chindia is our theme, and with that, I would like to call my colleague Orville Schell uh, up to give a little bit of background on our theme and, and the events of the next four days. So, thank you very much and welcome. Well, thanks, Jamie, and uh, nice to see you all here. Um, so, our topic is Chindia, uh, a strange branding exercise that was first lofted by Jairam Ramesh, who was the Minister of Forests and Environment uh, in India. And I think it bespoke of a, uh, of a notion that is now very much in process of uh, evolving. When we think of India and China, I think very often because of this whole notion of a, the BRICS, you know, Brazil, uh, India, and China, that somehow there is a tremendously close fraternal relationship to very largely populated Asian countries not too far apart. But in reality, I think uh, the fact is otherwise. Uh, India and China have had things to do with each other, but uh, one uh, must point out that between them lie the Himalayas and Tibet. And Tibet was always something of a buffer between these two countries. Uh, their first contact, as you will hear, of course, was back in the Opium Wars during this triangular trade where uh, British India would uh, uh, sell tea uh, uh, where, and opium uh, to China. China would uh, uh, buy it and, and surrender uh, uh, silk, silver, and it would profit India. So this was a kind of a bad start for the two countries. Since then, actually, the relationship has edged a little closer, but it's still, I would say, rather far apart. And I think it's very telling if any of you have ever tried to fly from Beijing to India. It's very difficult. The two flights that go each way go in the very middle of the night, and there are not a lot of flights. There's no sort of uh, shuttle back and forth, as one might imagine. So despite the fact that these two countries seem to be of such a growing importance, rather close together, in many ways similar, and of course dissimilarities as well, it still is an unforged partnership. So tonight, we have two really wonderful people to take us back to the, uh, to the beginning of this relationship, uh, namely the 19th century when this triangular trade was going on. We have Jonathan Spence, um, who has been Sterling Professor of History at Yale, uh, written many, many books. In my own library, I have uh, celebrated authors have their own shelf, and there is no shelf that is uh, more groaning with books than that uh, uh, given over to Jonathan's work. Uh, we have Amitav Ghosh, who is Indian, grew, grew up uh, partially in Sri Lanka, India, Bangladesh, uh, Calcutta, uh, educated at Oxford, has spent time in Cairo, and has written two books which really match up our two Chindia partners, Sea of Poppies uh, and River of Smoke. And River of Smoke is about uh, opium going to China, and we will have some discussion on that now. So, Jonathan and Amitav, please, the stage is yours. Well, here we are. <laughs> here we are. 
Good evening, and uh, this is a very special meeting for, for both of us, because uh, we've read each other, uh, and without being forced at all, I think can confess that we liked each other's work. Uh, and particularly River uh, of Smoke, uh, which I just finished, and then went back to the, the book just before, Sea of Poppies, and then read that through for the second time, and then came back into the earlier novel, uh, using it as a sort of crib into, into the... Uh, the uh, story that uh, uh, he, w he was telling. Uh, for me, uh, coming, as you may guess, from England, uh, but then switching to Chinese studies in America, sort of strange trajectory, uh, the joy of reading uh, Amitabh's work is, is the completely new way of reading about things I thought I knew about, uh, asking uh, outrageously simple-looking questions that are so difficult, and I'm hoping that we can uh, launch a discussion about, about some of these. Um, one, one would just be the, the role of... Uh, it's easy to talk about an opium war, a war about opium, uh, but again, it's a comparatively recent phenomenon, uh, as, as Orville said. Uh, and really, uh, before about 1790, 1780, uh, there was very little... Uh, opium taking in China and the reasons for this are complex we might get into them, we might not have time but it's linked to the act of smoking itself and until you smoke uh, other products you're not likely to smoke opium uh, and there was a whole mixture of products that might include uh, either cannabis and opium or, uh, or tobacco and opium uh, and these would be sold but the, the trade outline of the story is, is clear but the emotional one is, is very new to me, and uh, particularly uh, Amitabh's view that the, uh, the Indians are really the dominant producers and transporters uh, of uh, opium to the China market. Uh, and the British uh, are sort of not exactly only bystanders, but they're not the major uh, force, I don't think, behind this, this development. But the production of opium in India itself was, again, something I'd never studied. To me, sort of opium had always been there, in a way, after about 1790. Uh, and and, and tough-minded merchants uh, rode with it and, and made fortunes in some cases. We should also mention that uh, many of the, uh, uh, the Chinese merchants dealing in opium went bankrupt. Uh, and there's a very, very high bankruptcy rate for overextended Chinese merchants in this time, which has been studied by academics a little bit. But I've never, and, until reading this, this, this book on, on River of Smoke, uh, I had never really imagined how Indian farmers in, in Bengal uh, got the shipments prepared, paid for them, uh, trafficked with them, got the support of uh, necessary uh, f fellow merchants, as it were, uh, and particularly with the Parsi group, the combined new kind of um, economic roles with the, an understanding of, of Chinese markets. And so the, a new world is being born out of this uh, savagely uh, condemned uh, trade. Uh, and human greed uh, and human conscience and moral impetus all kind of overlap, I think. And this is what... Uh, I find most stimulating. You completely changed my way uh, of looking at this so that the early production, the farmers come first. And even before the farmers are the farmers' spouses or children. 
uh, who find their food crops being replaced by opium poppies. Uh, and uh, so from that beginning at a family level and husband and wife relations and feeding the children, Amitav takes us into this huge world, this, this chaotic, dangerous world of global trade. Well, you know, uh, for me, uh, being a, a, a writer of fiction, it's just the most amazing compliment to hear you say uh, that uh, about the, uh, you know, about what I've had to say about the opium trade, because, I mean, for me, um, as for so many Indians, uh, so many people of my generation, your work has really been the, uh, the introduction to China. As Orville uh, was pointing out earlier, it's just a fact that um, in India, China is uh, just a vast sort of area of darkness. We just don't, we were not taught about it. We were not, uh, we, didn't, uh, we didn't know about it, not about the geography, nor the history, nor anything really. And when I look back, uh, you know, uh, on my past as a student of history in India, right. and I would say that, uh, you know, I'm not an incurious person. I've always been very curious about other places and other things. Uh, it's extraordinary to me the degree to which we were completely blind, you know, to the world, uh, to that entire world. And really, it was your books, uh, you know, Matteo Ricci, The Gates of Heavenly Peace, and so on, which, uh, 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 you know, which were one small window into this world. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, it's very, very exciting for me to be here with Jonathan Spence today and, uh, you know, to be talking to you. But... Uh, one thing I would say here is that, uh, you know, in the opium trade, there's no doubt about who the, pres uh, the presiding genius of the trade uh, was, and, and that presiding genius was the East India Company. Mm -hmm. You know, they initiated the entire thing. It was they, uh, in order, because they suddenly faced this incredible sort of economic and financial crunch in India, you know, they were fighting multiple wars. They had to finance these wars. Uh, for them, uh, they, started, they decided in a completely premeditated fashion to expand the opium trade, uh, the opium exports to China. So they began to, de uh, they began to develop this, uh, they declared a monopoly over the opium trade. They started uh, giving loans to farmers in the Bengal presidency. Right. This became a form of debt slavery for the farmers, you know, because they would force these loans on them. Then they were caught in the cycle of having to grow more and more opium. The curious thing, though, is that, uh, you know, at that point in history, uh, the East India Company controlled a very large part of uh, eastern India, of Bengal, Bihar, all the way up to um, Avad, really. But they didn't control much of western India, right. you know. So uh, Bombay was really surrounded on all sides by native principalities. Right. So uh, the Bombay merchants were, of course, very clever, and uh, all, the, uh, all the princes of the interior saw exactly what was happening, and they decided to expand opium production. So they expanded at a very rapid rate. The British saw this, saw this happening, and they tried to establish a monopoly over the opium trade in Western India as well. But because they didn't control much land, they were just consistently outwitted you know, by the Indian trade networks. It's a remarkable thing, actually, that you know, in terms of business, we are always taught that you know, uh, European business practices were way ahead of uh, Asian business practices. But in fact, every time uh, the uh, European merchants went up against Asian merchants in a, in a situation where there was not political interference, for example, they tried to take over the retail distribution of opium in China and never succeeded. Right. They tried to take over the procurement in Western India and never succeeded. 
so th that opened a little window where indigenous merchants and indigenous uh, uh, growers, uh, you know, throughout Western India uh, could uh, grow opium. And they set about it with a, with a will. And, you know, right. within, <laughs> within 20 years, they'd surpassed the Bengal presidency. And, uh, you know, some, uh, a friend of mine has written a book uh, which shows us that Bombay would not exist today if it were not for the opium trade. <laughs> Uh, many of the most important companies uh, in Bombay, those which are buying up uh, well-known uh, British and American companies, come straight out of the opium trade. In fact, it's possible to say really that uh, all old money in the major presidency cities in India uh, really goes back to the opium trade. But the same is true of Massachusetts, I should add. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think that, I mean, what comes through very clearly in, in, in the histories of this period is that the, uh, the, the East India Company did not itself ship the opium. There was a sort of legalistic uh, separation from running much of the operation. But the actual transportation of opium, I think, in, in, in general, was not done on East India Company ships. It was done on what were called country traders and or the increasingly uh, successful and savvy uh, Indian, Indian merchants of, of various kinds. It, it's, it's intriguing to me that one of the many things I, I learned from, from, from reading Amitabh's uh, novels uh, is that they show the, the multiple uh, levels that were possible for money-making in this area and also the extraordinary administrative complexity of India. To, to look at maps... Uh, of uh, the changes in Indian governance and uh, uh, administration from, from north to far south is so extraordinary, to get back to Orville's earlier question, uh, remarks rather, about the, the Chinese relationship with India. China looks so organized and, and neat <laughs> uh, compared with the, 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 what looks to the outsider like a chaos of smaller states State dums and nawabs, uh, uh, they, they are still there, right? But the East India Company had to, had to sort of placate people in Parliament, uh, had to work out how to handle uh, the, the, the level of trade. Uh, as more studies are made now using uh, East India Company records but, uh, uh, and, and looking at the way they watch the trade grow, uh, the sums to me were quite extraordinary. Like, I mean, this was involving um, uh, operations of more than one million pounds sterling, for instance. Yes. And so the, the extraordinary chapters of Amitabh's book, in which the, the Parsi merchant is, is supervising the sale of his own private Indian purchase shipment of opium, uh, and the, uh, in, in a typhoon, the, um, the, uh, the huge crates of opium. Uh, ready for transportation and, and shipment and uh, sale, uh, starts smashing against the bulkheads in the, in the, in the ship. And it's a, it's a wonderful example of a metaphor that is realistic. Uh, you, you buy the opium, you, you are looking for your market, and then nature, storms come in and smash the opium, which used to be packed in uh, these large round uh, kind of containers. Uh, and so... Uh, the development of base uh, in the South China coast shows you China's, again, China's administrative uh, centrality. Uh, the, 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 the novel is able to get some of its huge, uh, amazing con sort of condensation to me uh, because 
uh, the, the, the trade is concentrated in Canton uh, city, Guangzhou. And this is before the explosion of Shanghai on the international scene. And it's even before uh, the, the seizure by the British of Hong Kong. Uh, and though some of the action in your second novel is, is, is based in, in Hong Kong, because the Chinese restricted the travel so tightly into their own domain that the dealer, whether it was dealers in legitimate trade or dealers in illegitimate uh, opium trade, they had to um, steer clear uh, of all the other cities by this time. And so it gives you uh, a wonderful plot, plot line, I think. Uh, I want to ask, because here you are, caught, <laughs> caught in the web of words, uh, I want to ask you a little bit about language, because I, I hope you could share with people here what to me was just a, a breathtaking cascade of language. This is a, a, some wonderful writing in, in both these, these volumes. And you seem to get energy uh, from uh, various kinds of dialect structures, local uh, people from very small areas in India, and then people who were the seafarers of the world, like the Laskars. Uh, I'd never really known anything about Laskars except vaguely they meant tough seamen, you know, the tough people. Uh, and here they are, are, very important to the story, and so is Indian indentured labor and its migratory patterns, which again cuts across what I'd always imagined to be a Chinese pattern of overseas exploration. So how, how did you set about creating a language out of these multiplicity of, of of, of, of dialects and rhythms and so on, uh, all the way eventually to Pidgin English and uh, uh, the Indian equivalents. How, how did that grow in your mind? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, uh, I, uh, the, the starting point for these books really was this, uh, was a kind of exploration of the ways in which people left India, you know, in the 1830s as indentured laborers and so on. So when I started looking into that, I started to ask myself, how did they leave? What were the ships like? Mm -hmm. And then I started looking at crew lists. And that in itself was an astonishing thing because, you know, the crews of the ships in the Indian Ocean were incredibly varied. You know, in the yes. crew lists, they always include their, uh, their home port. Yes. And you see from there that on any given ship, you'll have Malays and Persians and Arabs and, and <coughs> Filipinos and so on. While the, uh, uh, the actual uh, officers are always uh, European of one kind or another, you know, sometimes Australian, New, Zealand, uh, uh, New Zealanders, and sometimes, uh, sometimes English people. But, you know, if you've done any sailing at all, and I did a little bit for uh, trying to <laughs> prepare uh, to, to see understand. your puppies, one of the Including things typhoons. <laughs> Uh, one of the things which became evident to me is that, you know, sailing as a technology is very dependent on words. So, you know, mm -hmm. um, a captain calls out an order, everyone has to obey instantly or the ship will go over, which is why in the European languages, uh, all the major nautical languages had very compendious sort of uh, dictionaries, uh, or nautical dictionaries, you know, mm -hmm. every major European language from the 16th and 17th century onwards. So then I thought to myself, after all, these Europeans are in Asian waters. They are ordering these people around. There has to be a dictionary. Yes. So I started looking for a dictionary. And I happened to be spending a few months at Harvard at that time. And uh, you know, I managed to locate this one dictionary called uh, the Laskari Dictionary. Uh -huh. uh, it wasn't actually at Harvard. It was the only copy in the US was in Michigan for some reason. 
but they did manage to procure it for me. And it turned out that it was uh, published in 1812 in Calcutta by a very, uh, uh, by a very fine uh, a Scottish linguist called uh, uh, you know, Captain Roebuck. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he sets out this entire language. And you can see in this language, you know, there are elements of Portuguese, elements of uh, so many different, uh, uh, different languages, of Malayalam, of Chinese. Uh, so I didn't have to make anything up, really, because, uh, you know, he even provides you with the word order. He shows you right. uh, aspects of this. And then there's the pigeon, you know, and the pigeon, again, we have uh, some comprehensive accounts of pigeon, you know, uh, there's even a sort of, uh, there's a crestomathy of pigeon written by William Wells, who's worth yeah. you know. So uh, it's not that the material isn't there. It's, it is there. It's just that I guess uh, people haven't looked at it very much, you know. So for me, once I threw myself into it, it was incredibly exciting. Uh, similarly, uh, you know, I started learning Cantonese when I was writing these books, yeah. you know, just with, uh, with earphones and things. And, uh, it was so <laughs> exciting to discover this whole world of, you know, Cantonese street slang and Cantonese obscenities, which are so uh, inventive and <laughs> colorful. You have an, uh, uh, a, a sort of listing, right, of terms at the end of um, a Sea of Poppies? Yes, it's a custom. Uh, there's about a 20-page uh, uh, glossary, right? And I, I've been longing to ask you how, whether some of these definitions were entirely made up by you. Uh, whether all these are really terms you found in somebody else's dictionary. It seems to me it's rather a playful glossary, uh, and you have some remarks inserted there that seem to have a very, uh, a very personal flavor and touch to them. <laughs> it's, uh, I resist calling it a glossary because it's, it doesn't actually provide glosses. You know? yeah. It was something I wrote after I finished uh, writing Sea of Poppies. It was just a kind of sort of, uh, you know, a sort of form of play, really. And it was written in the voice of one of the characters in the book. Yes. And what it actually is, uh, is that uh, almost all those words are actually in the Oxford English Dictionary, uh -huh. you know, yeah. uh, as so much of the English language actually comes from Asian sources. But, uh, uh, you know, so what I was doing there really was uh, I made up some of, some of the, many of the Good. meanings uh -huh. I did make up, and they're completely fictional. And the whole idea is to lead the reader back into the text, as it were, you yes, know? Yes. Because I actually don't think that it's possible to define words, you know? I, I think it creates a sort of infinite regress. But you have uh, words uh, link your locations with, with yes. great specificity in, in, in these two books, I, I feel. Uh, and so it was only with this rereading, I suddenly all sorts of things began to fall into place. Uh, one of them was the history of Mauritius. <laughs> yes. Maybe you could tell us why the history of Mauritius is going to become a, such a uh, central part of your of your thinking. It was totally new to me. I must confess, I'd never thought about Mauritius very deeply, uh, and it took me a little time to f work out exactly where it was in relation to Madagascar. Uh, and the African coast. And, so, and then I began to sort of get the sense of the mountains and the world within it and uh, the idea of Mauritius on a w as a way station and uh, an example of what happens when slavery is forbidden. Uh, you suddenly change all kinds of uh, habits and customs, but you also get uh, a lot more indentured labor uh, yes. filling the gap. So 
somewhere like Mauritius. Have you, have you been and, and studied Mauritius? Tell us why we should uh, locate Mauritius in our own private memory banks. Mauritius, uh, you know, is, it's a very small country, but it's a very, very important country in the history of the world. And most of us don't even realize it, actually. But I'll tell you why. Um, you know, uh, there is, of course, this aspect of it as a way station. Yes. Uh, it's because, you know, Chinese, uh, a lot of Indian indentured workers go to Mauritius. A lot of Chinese uh, indentured workers go to Mauritius. Uh, the Chinese were much fewer in number in Mauritius. And in fact, uh, to this day, you can meet Mauritian Chinese who speak Bhojpuri, Hindi, you know. Uh, but it's this wonderful sort of melting pot of cultures. But what was very, Mauritius was very important in the 18th century because uh, it became, as it were, the first experiment in ecology. You know, there was at that time a man called Pierre Poivre. He was a French Jesuit. Uh, later, he, uh, he left the, uh, he left, uh, uh, you know, his, his, his order. But he had worked a lot in China and then in India. And he was very interested in botany. Yes. So he arrived in Mauritius and he set up this, uh, uh, this Jardin du Roi, which is actually now the Pamplemousse uh, Botanical Garden, one of the oldest botanical gardens in the world and linked with the botanical gardens of uh, Leiden and uh, Cape Town and the Kew and so on. But he had around him two uh, very, very interesting and important figures. One was a, uh, a, a Frenchman called Bernardin de Saint-Pierre, who wrote uh, an amazing book called Paul and Virginie. I don't know if you, uh, Paul and Virginia, I don't know if you ever read it. It was almost the founding text of Romanticism, uh -huh. the first bestseller uh, in human history, uh, you know, apart from the scriptural ones. Uh, it sold, uh, you know, it went through more translations uh, than virtually any other French, uh, French uh, book. And it, it sold millions of copies in the 19th century. You know, Napoleon had a copy on his bedside. Every single person read uh, Paul and Virginia. But Bernardin de Saint-Pierre was actually interested f mainly in ecology. Mm -hmm. You know, he had this obsession with nature because he was a disciple of uh, Rousseau. And you know, you remember Rousseau invents this idea of the island as paradise when he goes to Lake Geneva. Uh -huh. But Mauritius actually becomes the place where they invent the, uh, the idea of a sort of island Eden, mm -hmm. you know? So that was where they first start controlling, uh, you know, uh, deforestation. Uh, they start thinking of uh, ways in which to sort of uh, harness, uh, uh, you know, to treat nature in such a way that it, uh, that it becomes a self-sustaining system. So it was a, I mean, it was, a, it was an absolute laboratory uh, of the modern world uh, in many ways. And technologically so, right? Yes. The one, one of the intriguing things here uh, was the way that uh, the, the fascination with botany and the movement of plants sort of is a, is a new linkage globally. Uh, but it also requires deep sort of ordinary carpentry, right? So yeah. that there are some passages in the book which, are, again, echo some things I'd seen and what little I've read about the history of botany, uh, which is how do, you, how do you transport your rare plants when you want to get them to Kew from Mauritius, for instance? How do you get them to have light, but not too much light? How do you get them to keep watered, but not seawater, which will kill the plant? How do you build the perfect container? Uh, and, and it's detailing like this that, again, helps make your book completely absorbing because the, the reader wants to know more about the, the technology. And, and I know that, um, uh, from what little I've read about this, that to ship 
just a few plants in one of these big sort of holders, uh, very rapidly began to fill people's cabins up, yes. right? So that you had to decide between leaving passengers behind or your plants. Uh, and you'd even have anti-plant mutinies, I guess we'd call them, when angered crewmen who were jammed in impossible spaces, uh, hideously crowded and, and, and revoltingly smelly and below decks, as it were, uh, and the plants were kind of luxuriating <laughs> in the other upper level. Uh, and it's not long before infuriated crewmen start <laughs> chucking plants overseas. Uh, and this uh, English uh, botanist, I think some of this was supervised by, is it Banks? Joe yes, yes, Banks, yes. who I think there's been some writing about in, in, in recent uh, times, who, who was one of the great British harnesses of this of this move to get uh, the rare plants and so on back to England. Well, tell us a little about the morality of this then. You, you, you give some time to the uh, Chinese attack on opium addiction and you also deal with uh, Commissioner Lin, the Chinese senior official, uh, and his attempt to control uh, opium uh, sales uh, and to enforce a boycott. Uh, China-wide, and actually to destroy all the opium crops uh, in, that have been shipped to China. Could you tell us a little bit about your, your moral take on this? The, China did debate uh, legalizing opium, and it's important. You, you mentioned that, of course, because it's a very crucial part of the, of the story. So before the opium war, we get the attempt to actually... Um, legalize and tax, as has been discussed in other societies at different times. Uh, but the, 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 the legalizer and tax uh, wing of, of the Chinese bureaucracy was uh, uh, overthrown by the tougher, harder line. Uh, so can you share some thoughts that sure. you had? Well, this is a, a moral conundrum, because it's a very interesting use of, of narcotics in global history, I think. Very interesting. Um, well, you know, China was uh, perhaps the first country to face mass narcotic addiction, uh, really. And, you know, um, I came to that whole story with a kind of open mind, uh, indeed with some hesitation, because, after all, it was from, India, from my country that all this was going, <laughs> through my hometown, you know, Calcutta. So uh, I came to it with some trepidation. But I must say that, you know, one of the things which really struck me in studying the Chinese uh, sort of governmental response to opium was that it was really in so many ways completely exemplary. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, they set up commissions. Uh, the emperor asked his uh, mandarins to mm -hmm. go out mm -hmm. and study the problem and to uh, send him circulars. And they did such an astonishing job. I mean, you know, uh, some people laid out a case for legalization. Some people opposed legalization. But in the end, the decision that they took, I think, was the right one, which is that they said that this is a public health problem, but you can't treat it purely as a public health problem because... It's also the trade issue. It's also a trade issue. Essentially, what's at the root of this is that, uh, you know, they can't afford to buy our goods in as much bulk as they want to, you know. So they realized that, you know, there was a trade imbalance. So they tried to approach it by, uh, you know, uh, stopping the smuggling yep. because, you know, uh, that, that had been illegal since the mid-18th century. It was when they tried to stop it that, in fact, uh, you know, uh, the, the British attacked them and, uh, you know, forced them to continue uh, importing opium. But it is a very interesting issue to, uh, you know, to look at how, uh, you know, uh, how they approached uh, uh, that problem. Right. 
And it also, the, it's triggered a kind of a, a, a not exactly a counter-historiography, but a new, a new historiographical exploration, which is looking at uh, some areas of, of China that began, uh, once the legalization had been thrown out, different areas began to experiment with planting their own yes. opium plants inside yes. China itself. And the, within the last couple of years, there have been studies of... Um, Opium uh, transshipped through um, Western China in, in, in Xinjiang route, and then another one in the southwest, right? Maybe yes. through Myanmar, or maybe coming yes. uh, across uh, into southwest China. Uh, and uh, we we now know hist historically that it was not only the opium coming in from the sea coast to central China. There was peripheral Western Chinese opium flowing back into the middle. So. Uh, as often happens in history, the story gets um, more even, even more, more and more complicated, yes. Uh, well, I had so many things here. Let me look at a few others. Um, uh, what about introspection? Yeah, you, you, with Bahram, the, the, I don't know how to pronounce Bahram, it. Yes. Bahram is the character. Uh, we have here a, a sort of an, uh, I assume a sort of uh, uh, Zoroastrian, is that yes. right? Of, of and again, a religion of which I, I, I had l little knowledge at all. But it, here's the thinking man. I mean, he drives much of this of this book. Mainly, maybe you could tell us a little about how his character formed in your in your minds, and, and uh, uh, what I'm trying to suggest here that you you slowly got almost taken over by your own character yes, because that's he's right. so he's so intelligent, uh, and he has such an interesting life and such a tragic death. Uh, so could you share a few thoughts, write sure. any thoughts? So. I, I find that it always happens with the book that one character or another will just impose themselves on you. And in this case, <laughs> it was Behram. Uh, I actually made my first uh, sketches for Behram uh, when I started writing the first book, Sea of Poppies. But he came sort of more and more to the fore. And you see, what's very interesting about the early opium traders, American, English, and, Indi and Indian, is that they were really incredibly philanthropic men. You know, uh, I mean, in, uh, in Massachusetts, they founded any number of institutions, uh, in, including perhaps the one where, <laughs> where you've been. <laughs> I, I'm sure some part of it, because, uh, you know, one of the biggest opium traders in Canton was Andrew Delano, who was yes. uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uh, grandfather. Yeah. The Coolidge's and so on. Uh, but uh, uh, similarly, in India, uh, the... Uh, uh, the Parsis, when they, uh, when they came, the richest Parsi merchants in Bombay founded this incredible network of philanthropic institutions, you yeah. know, uh, which, yeah. are, which are still functioning today. So they were clearly think, not just thinking men, but, uh, you know, men who were deeply responsive to their circumstances. And what's interesting about Zoroastrianism is that uh, it has this very sort of Manichaean distinction between good and evil. Yes. Yeah. So that idea is sort of very much present uh, in their ways of thinking. So as I sort of explored Bahram's uh, consciousness, uh, you know, as, as one does with a character, I became more and more fascinated by what it would have meant, you know, for yeah. a man like him to be uh, in Canton at these critical moments when uh, the Opium War is about to start. And there can be no doubt that, you know, the, uh, the Indian merchants, the Bombay merchants were absolutely critical to the Opium War. Mm -hmm. They financed a lot, a lot of it. They provided ships. Uh, and of course, a lot of the people, a lot of the soldiers who fought it were Indians, you know. So uh, the Indian presence in it is actually absolutely critical in this uh, in this particular phase. But what's very interesting in it is that 
India does not today recognize this past. Almost mm. nothing is written about it. And in some odd way, China, where the opium war is such a vivid memory, as you know, you know all those museums in Guangdong, yeah. uh, they don't recognize it. You know, the Indian presence in this is completely effaced. Yes. I mean, even when you see the paintings of the war and so on, uh, the Indians are completely effaced, even though they acknowledge that the opium came from India. And I always found myself very intrigued by this, you know. I mean, what is it that... And, you know, India and China have had their tensions in the 60s, they fought a war. I always wondered, uh, you know, how come some Chinese leader didn't stand up and say, well, you know, you guys, you were just the running dogs of imperialism bringing us opium, <laughs> you know? Which, in fact, is the case, you know? But nobody ever said that in China, you know? It's as if uh, there was a sort of common consent uh, to surround this entire, this entire episode in history. And really, it's an episode of incredible importance in the sense that it made modern China and in, to a significant degree, I think, yeah. made modern India. You know, uh, th this episode just came to be obscured and occluded. That, that enables one to narrow the story to England's role, actually. I mean, that's one way that you can tidy up the, the, the past is, is by uh, looking yes. at the, the major trading firms and also... Uh, there's been a little work recently on the shipbuilding uh, that goes along because this, uh, the, at the same time in the Opium War in the 1830s, you begin to get armoured warships, uh, yes. steam-driven armoured uh, vessels, and at least some of these were designed for the China uh, to, to show force, as it were, in China. Uh, it was also very good for the British uh, youthful shipping industry in uh, Liverpool and in other, other, other major industrial cities. So we get, it's amazing how much of sort of global history gets tangled up here in the story. You mentioned a painting very briefly, uh, and one of the uh, people that this novel concentrates on in the, the um, uh, I guess, the River of Smoke uh, particularly, uh, is the Chinnery family. I don't know how many people here know Chinnery's paintings. Okay, I mean, tell us a little bit what drew you to Chinnery and how you... Uh, uh, whether you think there's more to that story than we've got uh, so far. Chinnery was such an unlikely man, in a way. Um, you know, Chinnery is a completely fascinating person. And one aspect of uh, what makes him so fascinating is that he was actually present in Macau uh, during, uh, you know, the Opium Wars. Uh, George Chinnery was uh, uh, a painter. He, uh, he was trained at the Royal Academy. Uh, he was taught by Sir Joshua Reynolds, and he was a a contemporary of Rayburn and Hopner yes. and so on. Uh, he, but he was of Irish extraction from a very eccentric family. And when quite young, he ran away to uh, Ireland. And uh, he had quite a flourishing sort of practice there as a painter. He married an Irish woman. And then he got very tired of her after having... <laughs> he had two children with her. So he fled to Madras, where one of his relatives had a factory. So he painted in Madras for a few years... Then he moved to Calcutta, where he spent 12 years, and he, uh, he had incredible success in Calcutta. He also had a Bengali mistress with whom he had two sons. Mm -hmm. uh, then, uh, after his huge success, his, uh, his wife followed him to Calcutta. At this point, uh, it, uh, he couldn't take it anymore, so he fled uh, to Again. Canton, where women were not allowed <laughs> so, <laughs> to get away from her. 
And while in uh, Canton and Macau, he produced this incredible body of work. Um, also, he produced wonderful work in yeah. Bengal. His sketches of Dhaka and of uh, Calcutta are just uh, marvelous. Uh, uh, I really think he was one of the great artists of the 19th century. Yeah. What has prevented his being recognized as such is that he was away from the centers of uh, metropolitan uh, European art. What was also very interesting is that he became a part of a process of exchange with Chinese artists, you know, because yes. in Canton, there was this absolutely flourishing school of art. They made, uh, you know, there were these artists who produced really astonishing work, right. uh, which was uh, produced in a, a uh, in a style that unites Chinese techniques and uh, European techniques, you know. Really uh, extraordinary work, uh, you know. And a lot of them, uh, you know, surrounded Chinnery and, uh, you know, started working for him as apprentices. And Chinnery, and then they set themselves up as his, uh, as his rivals, which infuriated Chinnery, you know. But it's so interesting to me to see, you know, the difference between the Chinese response to Chinnery and the Indian response. Because, uh -huh. you know, Chinnery lived for a long time in Calcutta. He had uh, Indian apprentices. But not a trace of his work survives in oh, India. I didn't not a trace. Yeah. And he didn't even leave behind a sort of school of, um, you know, collaborators. In China, on the other hand, he, you know, because, uh, you know, he arrived uh, on sort of fertile soil, uh, you know, he had this enormous impact, you know. Uh, and his work really had these long reverberations. Uh, you know. And he had Chinese pupils, right? Uh, he had Chinese pupils taught, taught, and competitors. Yes, and competitors. That's true. true. Well... Um, not only painters, but also uh, sports, uh, buffs. Uh, you, you tell us a little more about cricket in the <laughs> Canton, uh, because that's something that the British shared now with Indian culture. Uh, you, you have a wonderful passage in which the British, uh, pretty much trapped by the situation in which they're in, uh, play a, a rousing game of cricket on the Maidan, is it <laughs> pronounced, the, the, the open space. Uh, outside the city walls. It was a, a weirder system. Canton was secure behind its inner walls uh, as the Chinese city or the Chinese-slash-Manchu conqueror's city. And then the British and all these other Hongs, uh, merchant groups, were uh, on the edge of the waterfront, which was a few hundred yards from the actual city wall. And there you had a sort of a blossoming kind of semi-city, semi-brothel, semi... I mean, a crazy, a wild place with... Uh, men only, uh, except for uh, women who occasionally came across Ill illegally. Uh, and then the thought of, of, of cricket being played uh, on the, as, the, as, the, as, the, as the war clouds gathered struck me as, as a beautiful image. Uh, do, do we know anything else about uh, athletics? or uh, How did they pa pass the time again? How did these merchants, whether they were Parsi, uh, or British, or German, or American. How, how do you, you you give us some sense of their life? Would it have been incredibly tedious? Or you, you, one of your characters says at one time, "There's so much going on, as well." How, how did this multi, uh, sort of multinational um, kind of body of, of uh, pastimes? You know, how did that exist? We have botany, uh, and we have the opium itself. Uh, and we have painting, uh, and now when cricket is thrown in the mix, <laughs> I was uh, fascinated by where you got the information on that. Well, uh, 
that's a very a rich uh, body of memoirs, journals, uh, indeed paintings. But what is, uh, I mean, I became completely fascinated by this, uh, uh, by this foreign enclave uh, yes. in Canton, what yes. is called the 13 factories. And one of the sort of really enchanting things about it is that it no longer exists. It was burnt down in 1856, and it was never rebuilt in its original location. But, uh, you know, you have to remember that it's a, it was a very peculiar world because there they were crammed into this small space for six months of the year. They all had to live, live together. Uh, you know, Indians, uh, um, lots of Chinese people, lots of uh, Europeans of various kinds. They all had to live together in this space. These men were the richest men in the world at the time. They were incredibly wealthy. And, uh, you know, so they... Uh, they were absolutely unbelievably lavish in their, in their lifestyle. I mean, if you just look at the supplies they bought yes. from day to day, if you look at the menus for their dinners, it's unbelievable, you know, how much they ate, how much they drank. And the amount of champagne is really champagne. awesome. Uh, unbelievable. And then after all, the, after all these great banquets, they would have dances, you know. They would dance with each other. I mean, they were great dancers. They would get their ship's bands to come and play. Uh, there was uh, this whole, uh, they would love to have uh, uh, African-American musicians, you know. So they would get them, uh, you know, ship them in. I'm talking about Canton in the 1820s and 30s. And they played sport. Uh, they would have these regattas, you know, on the Pearl River. And uh, what happened in 1839 is that uh, Commissioner Lin, uh, he told them, uh, he demanded that they surrender all their opium. And they refused, so he barricaded uh, this entire enclave. It was a very gentle barricading. They were sort of bombarded with food. He gave them yes, <laughs> geese and oxen and you know anything they wanted. But he just wouldn't let them leave. So in that period of about six weeks, uh, you know, they staged all these. Uh, they had amateur uh, theatricals. Uh, they played cricket. Uh, they climbed uh, flagpoles. They did all sorts of extraordinary things. Uh, so all of that is right there in the description. Right. That, and that gets picked up in Shanghai society later, 30, 30 years later than that. Um, there's one other thing, well, there are many other things, but one that struck me is that a slight tension in your own interpretation of, of this, uh, the build-up to this opium war, uh, is, the, is the nature of opium addiction itself or opium use. Uh, and it seems to me that you're not quite sure uh, whether opium could be taken very sparingly as a recreational narcotic of some kind, or whether the act of, uh, of taking opium, even a little bit, was so desperately uh, addictive, in other words, that it ruined you know, huge subunits of, of, of Chinese culture. And indeed, you suggest uh, of, of, of Western culture to some extent, and even to Parsi uh, takers of, of opium. Where, where do you feel that the truth lies on this if people are trying to calculate figures of, of addiction and the seriousness with which opium was uh, purchased and, and used? You know, again, I wonder what kind of a, a feeling you have about that as a moral issue. Uh. I think it's very difficult to be sort of, uh, you know, simple-mindedly moralistic about uh, opium. Because, see, uh, opium is one of the oldest substan uh, medicinal substances known to man. I mean, yeah. uh, 
half the, so many of the drugs we take today are based on opium. Like Imodium is essentially an opiate. All the cough medicines we take are basically uh, opiates. So, you know, we all take opium all the time and we can't, uh, you know, after all, we can't uh, run that down. But, uh, you know, um, it, it would seem to be the case that the problem that occurred in China in the 18th century was that there was a sort of very rapid aestheticization of opium, you know, so that uh, the possibilities of addiction became uh, greatly amplified. Mm -hmm. yeah. In India, too, uh, there's a sort of invisible line that ran through Asia, you know, in the, uh, up till the 20th century. It basically goes through, like, Western Burma. But on the east side of this line, people uh, smoked opium. On the western side, they ate it. And eating it was, it was very hard to become addicted to it as such. And across India, there were lots and lots of opium eaters, and in Burma as well. But uh, if you smoked it, it was a much more intense experience. And it became, uh, you know, one, uh, if you had a, uh, two or three times, uh, you could be addicted. But it appears that there were many, many people in China who, would, who were occasional recreational smokers of opium mm -hmm. and who were not uh, addicts as such. Now, how does, one, how does one respond to that? You know, really, um, clearly in China in the 18th and 19th centuries, opium was not just a public health problem, but an immense political problem because mm -hmm. it was uh, completely corrupting their institutions, it was corrupting their government. But beyond that, uh, you know, it's perfectly clear that all societies in all history, have, except the Eskimos apparently, have always used mind-altering drugs. You know, uh, that's always been the case. If you look at America today and the rates of uh, Prozac consumption, of the consumption of, uh, say, Ritalin and all these other drugs, I mean, you know, uh, perhaps half the population is, uh, is uh, taking these drugs. So, you know, the only difference is that these drugs have some pharmaceutical sort of imprint upon it. Uh, but how, how can one really be moralistic about it? I mean, Queen Victoria took laudanum, you know, like most, uh, so many women in the 19th century. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very, very complicated picture. And I don't think that it's possible to be simple-mindedly moral about individual use of opium. But I do think that it is possible to look at the East India Company's use of opium as a weapon in a trade war. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there, it seems to me that it, it was completely unjustifiable, mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. And it was perfectly clear to them. That was perfectly clear to the Chinese. It was perfectly clear to, the, uh, to British and American evangelicals who talked about it a lot and who mounted campaigns to stop it. And, you know, they were never able to. I mean, even Gladstone uh, ultimately said, no, go ahead, keep the opium trade going, you know. Right. In the end, when it came to the pocket and the conscience, uh, invariably, the pocket won. Yeah, we, we can see the relevance of the issues you raise, uh, and we can get a different way of approaching the same kind of uh, fact that uh, we, might, we might have ignored before. That's when I, I constantly find myself thinking, wow, I hadn't been really aware of that. So accepting it as fiction, I nevertheless could get the historian thinking in new directions, and I think you, you do that quite a lot. Uh, and particularly, I urge people to look at the very end of the... Uh, of the uh, River of Smoke uh, book, when they uh, they feel you or you discuss one of the characters or Baram, I guess, uh, who feels that uh, the difficult thing in the future is going to be to persuade people that there was anywhere like this. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's a lovely, yeah. 
a cl closing sort of thought. Uh, and uh, we need both perhaps a, a fiction writer to ask really challenging, unusual kinds of questions that we haven't thought about. Uh, the historian, if, if, if wanted, uh, can comment on certain zones, you know, that maybe uh, could be differently interpreted. So that they, sure. and, and, and one can add glosses. For instance, one of the early uh, 18th century emperors in China uh, was himself uh, very much aware uh, that um, opium was medicinal as well as narcotic. And so we get the Yong Jung Emperor having uh, the, the, almost the earliest text we have. Uh, the emperor is anticipating the fiction in a way by saying, yes, uh, so what we've got to do is we've got to distinguish between the illegal opium uh, and the opium that's needed by a family that has an illness. And so when we meet a peddler on the road with a sack full of opium, which they, they occasionally did, uh, maybe part of one of these great big uh, uh, sort of um, pottery-covered bowls, of opium. they weighed 130 pounds, I believe, each one of these uh, lumps of solid opium. That's why the, the profit margin rose so rapidly uh, to illegal traders. But the emperors are a little bit tracked by their knowledge because they know that health depends on this as, yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned some of the diseases. This was known in, in, in China itself. Yes. Well, one thing I would say the, uh, about history and uh, fiction is that, you know, what struck me very forcibly in reading all the histories, etc., about the Opium War and about the whole Canton, uh, Canton system and so on is that, you know, uh, you get the political histories, you get the botanical histories, like yeah. Fatih Fan's wonderful uh, work. Yeah. Uh, you get the histories of art. Uh, you get the histories of trade. And all of them uh, sort of divide it up, you yeah. know. But for the people who were there, the guy who's actually in the foreign enclave, these are not separate. You know, he's sitting next to the botanist. He's sitting yeah. next yeah. to the artist. He's, he's dealing with all of them all the time, you know. So it's a completeness. And in a way, you can't approach that through history, you know, through formal history, because it would just be too too vast. You would have uh, your your sort of uh, yeah. uh, your base of reference would be just too uh, over, you know overwhelming. Yeah. So that is, in some sense, I think, what uh, a novelist can do, which is to, as it were, imagine the totality of the experience. Yeah. You know? right. Well, that's uh, a marvelous note on which to conclude tonight's. Uh, Entree to the Chindia Dialogues. It was such a pleasure. It was really so.